0: Good morning, once again. Eleven AM service. Shout out! This is my favorite service. You can tell the nine thirty. I said that, uh, but I told them that they're my favorite service. So, uh, all of them are my favorite service. I just love, love, love uh, being in church. I love the church. I love the bride of Christ. I, I love. Um, Everything that this is about, worshiping God, gathering as a community, to not only just worship God uh, in song, but worship him in in giving, giving ourselves unto him in service. Shout out to our volunteers, giving in finances so that we can build his kingdom um, and worship God in the word. So I love Sunday. Sundays are, are great. I love eating Uh, Food after church. Food just tastes different on Sundays. Am I the only one? Gwen, thank you. Yeah, eating out after Sundays is different, and so I'm excited to eat after this. Uh, So who knows? Maybe I'll preach fast. Maybe I'll preach slow. Depends how hungry I get. Uh, So thank you so much for being here. Uh, This morning, we find ourselves closing out our wonderful sermon series uh, entitled, God, the Church, and Everything in Between. So for the past four weeks— Uh, We've been making our way through chapter one of Ephesians, uh, and we've been just expounding the wonderful spiritual blessings that God has blessed us with in Christ Jesus. And so this morning, we are wrapping up this series and closing out chapter one uh, as we look at the final set of verses, uh, verses 15 through 23, Ephesians chapter one, verses 15 through 23. Uh, Will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. It says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, uh, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, So with the remaining time uh, that we have together, uh, I want to unpack three things uh, that have presented themselves in this portion of Scripture. Uh, This portion of Scripture uh, is about growth and growth in specifically knowledge. There's, There's three things that the author Paul wants us to know better personally. The first one is to know God. The second is to know hope. And the third is to know power to know God, to know hope, and to know power. Let's pray as we prepare our heart and mind to receive God's word. Holy Spirit, we come to you in Jesus' name, and we ask that you would come into our mind, into our heart, uh, into our person, uh, and make room to receive all that you have for us. I pray that all distractions would be pushed away. I pray that all thoughts and worries about tomorrow and this week uh, would be laid to rest. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give us vision to look upon Jesus, knowing that if we see Jesus, everything will be different. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, I I don't know about you, but have you ever had one of those days or one of those moments or one of those weeks where uh, life just turns you into a prayer warrior? Uh, like, like maybe you're just uh, really going through it and all the situations are against you. All the circumstances are uncomfortable. They're, they're stretching your faith and you find yourself just praying. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but, but this tends to be uh, my pattern uh, is that I'm not really good at praying and I noticed that the pressures and stressors of life usually invoke me to pray. Uh, like I could just be going through something really tough and all of a sudden I'm praying things I didn't even know I had the capability of praying. I'm using words that I didn't even know were in my vocabulary. I'm just crying out to God, help me. Um, maybe, uh, for example, here's a story This happened this week. I was running errands in Austin. Um, it was my day off uh, and uh, I thought I had the whole day free and then I remembered I had a 3 p.m. Zoom meeting, and it's about 1:30 when I remember this, and usually I'm okay with scheduling Zoom meetings. I'm okay with being late to them, uh, but this one was with a very important pastor friend who's uh, uh, done a, is playing a, a pivotal role uh, in my development and in the day-to-day things of the Springs, and so he, uh, I can't miss it. It's like a board meeting type of thing, and so I thought to myself, uh, Man, I'm going to be really late. And so I'm driving back from uh, Austin, and, and the craziest thing happens. There's traffic. Which is so strange to me. Uh, And then I'm making my way through traffic, and then uh, next thing is uh, the the gas light comes on, and usually that doesn't worry me. Uh, I drive by faith, not by gas. And so uh, it says 19 miles to empty, and I think this is totally okay. I'm like less than 19 miles away uh, from San Marcos. Uh, And then the next thing is that there's traffic in San Marcos, and it goes from 19 miles to empty to to eight miles to empty. uh, And I'm stuck in traffic, and it's just like barely moving. And it goes from eight miles to four miles. Uh, And and usually in in this circumstance, I I just don't care if I get stranded by the highway. One of you guys will pick me up. Uh, I'll call you. Uh, But I could not be late to this meeting. And it was like 10 minutes until the next exit. And it's just slowly going down. and, And I just break out in prayer. Lord, I know you're the God who can multiply bread and fish, multiply the gas that's in this car. Lord, I know that you can split the Red Sea, split this traffic, and just let me arrive to the gas station in Jesus' name. I call my wife, and we start praying together. I was like, man, I was really freaking out. Because uh, I could not be late to this meeting, and lo and behold, by God's grace, I made it to, to the gas station, and, and here we are today to tell the story. Uh, but all, all that to say is that sometimes this tends to be the model of prayer in our lives. It is that instead of praying into uh, our, our circumstances or, or praying uh, into life, we let life sort of direct our prayer life. Well, we pray reactive prayers, like "Oh, uh, this has come up" or, or "This is going on." And so, a lot of our prayer life is is, is reactive. Uh, we're praying in response uh, to a difficult thing to get through life. We we pray that God would would make a way. And this is probably the most familiar model of prayer. Uh, like, if we're honest with ourselves, this is uh, the model of prayer that, that most of us pray, and there's, and there's nothing wrong with this. Uh, in, in fact, this is a model that we see uh, Jesus uh, display. Uh, when he's in the garden and he's experiencing the anguish of sin and is moments away from the cross, he prays, Lord, uh, this is miserable. If it is your will to remove this cup, remove it, let it pass, but not my will be done, but yours. And so there's nothing wrong with praying in response to our circumstances. There's nothing wrong with petitioning God for breakthrough. But in this portion of Scripture, we're introduced to something different. We're, we're introduced to a, a completely different model of prayer, uh, this radical approach, yet it's an ancient approach, and it's this idea of thanksgiving, this idea of thanksgiving. Uh, You see, what moves Paul to prayer is not necessarily a deadly circumstance. And Paul had those. Uh, Plenty of points in his life was was Paul uh, facing near-death experiences. Acts chapter 19, this is the background for this whole setting, uh, is that he is doing ministry in a a city that is uh, up to its neck in in magic and spiritual uh, ritual practice. And Paul is going into the city and saying, hey, you know, the lives that you live and and, and the idols that you're giving yourself to are are powerless. They don't have the ability to transform you or give you hope or give you life the way you think it will. And uh, this causes a riot. Because all of a sudden, the social economic stability of the town begins to tank because all their money is made from crafting uh, silver and gold idols that represent different gods. All their money is made from the tourism of people making their pilgrimage uh, to this city to worship said idol. And a riot breaks out because now people's livelihood is at stake. And so Paul was very familiar with near-death experience, and it didn't faze him. In fact, for him, he would say that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was a problem. They never knew what to to do with him. And so this deadly circumstance isn't moving him to prayer. Uh, What is moving Paul to prayer uh, is not a a personal need that uh, needs to be filled. Uh, And he had a huge personal need uh, that needed to be met. Uh, If Paul was sitting in a growth group uh, and it was his turn to share needs and names uh, his name would be the whole city of Ephesus, because Paul just rolls like that. He's like, I, my, my name is every single person in Ephesus, and he would mean it. And not only would he mean it, he would go after it. Uh, and when it came for his need, hey, Paul, what is a, a personal need that, that, that you just need the Lord to, to intervene and meet? This is what I think he should say. Now, this, this isn't what he would say, but I think he should say, hey, I need to be released from prison, I'm locked up in jail right now for the proclamation of the gospel. The only thing that I, I, I've done is proclaim how good and wonderful Jesus is, and I'm in jail right now. And it's fact, In fact, it's from this place in jail that Paul is writing this letter. And so that's not his need. That's not moving him to prayer. He's not praying, God, set me free from these chains and from these bars. What's moving Paul to prayer is not a deadly circumstance And it's not a specific personal need. What's moving him to prayer is thanksgiving. This is what is moving him towards prayer. So at the beginning of this chapter, Paul breaks out into worship. We've said this quite a few times. Uh, Four times now, and this will be my fifth time and maybe my last time saying this, but verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence. One long sentence of Trinitarian praise, 202 words to be exact. And so with that same sort of spirit of writing lengthy sentences, Paul transitions from worship into prayer and thanksgiving, and he pins down another sentence. One sentence, verses 15 through 23 that we just read, is one sentence in the Greek, 169 words. So that's pretty cool to think about. Verses 3 through 22 are two sentences, over 300 words. I don't know why I love that. It just speaks to my heart. Let's move on. Okay, so he is, he is overwhelmed with worship. He's praying and he's expressing thanksgiving. But what exactly is he thankful for? The text reveals three things. One, he is thankful for people, for people, specifically the saints in Ephesus, uh, as Ephesians 1 uh, verses 1 through 2 says. So Paul, he is constantly suffering for the gospel, and he has received encouraging news. He's in jail, and he's received news that, hey, uh, the gospel has taken root in Ephesus, that there's a community of people that are finding hope and life in Jesus Christ and are turning away from idols. And this is stirring his heart to worship. He's breaking out in praise. He's overwhelmed with encouragement and gratitude. The second thing that Paul is thankful for is their faith. He's thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus, Ephesians 1.15. Uh, and what's interesting to notice is that it, was, it, was, it wasn't like old, mature, seasoned faith. It was brand new faith. Uh, and, and if there's anything that you know about brand new faith, is that it tends to be messy faith. It tends to be sometimes weak faith. There's this novelty, there's this newness of of growing in faith in the Lord. I remember when I uh, first became a Christian and I started placing faith in Jesus, uh, I was just causing wildfires uh, because I was just so zealous with my faith. Uh, I, I, just couldn't, I just loved God so much, and I, and I wanted people to know about him, and my techniques uh, were not good. Uh, my evangelism was, was very poor. I, I would say things like, I think you're going to hell, but I don't know why. Do you know Jesus? Uh, and the heart was there. Um, it, the presentation was off. Uh, it, was, it was a messy faith. It, it was a weak faith. I, I remember so many times being so insecure about my relationship with God. God, do you love me? Is this even real? Uh, God, uh, is this just something that, uh, am I just buying into emotionalism? And, and Paul here is, is, is breaking out in praise and thanksgiving for their faith, which we can conclude was probably a, a, a weak faith, a new faith. But nonetheless, it was faith. And what's so great about the Christian faith is that it has nothing to do with the strength of your faith. It has nothing to do with how strong you are in the faith, how old you are in the faith. It has everything to do with the object of your faith. You see, in Christianity, it's not about how much faith you have, but who you are placing your faith in. You see, faith in ourselves is weak faith, but faith in Jesus is strong faith because we're placing our faith in the mountain-moving God and the God that intervenes on our behalf. That's why Jesus says that the faith of a mustard seed can move mountains, because your faith is connected to something, and that is Jesus. And so, church, where is your faith today? Is it faith in yourself? Uh, Is it faith in your own abilities, uh, in your own experiences, or is your faith connected to the person of Christ? And if it's connected to the person of Christ, all you need is a small seed of faith to see mountains moved and God uh, work in your life powerfully. And, and Paul is excited. He's, he's excited that there's a community of people that are placing faith in Jesus. The third thing uh, that Paul is excited about is their love towards all the saints. Now, this is amazing. Paul is ecstatic that they're experiencing genuine faith. And the reason why he knows it's genuine is because their faith is moving them in the direction of people. You see, faith in Christ will always lead us towards loving God more and learning to love those around us. Uh, You can't have faith without love, and you can't claim to have faith in Jesus if you don't uh, love your neighbor and others as yourself. Now, I'm not uh, petitioning here for perfect love, but moving in the direction of love. And not and moving away from hate, moving in the direction of loving God with all our heart, soul, and mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so Paul is so excited that they're moving in love, because historically they moved away from that. In, in fact, racial tensions plagued this church. Uh, um, Political alignments plagued this church. Hierarchies plagued this church where you had one group who associated themselves with this idol, another group that associated themselves with this uh, political ideology. Then you had Jews who didn't mix with the Gentiles and the Gentiles who rejected the Jews and, and, and all these plethora of obstacles and barriers that would keep people away, and yet they're moving towards each other. Because that's what the love of God does. As we grow in our faith, we love God and we learn to love those around us. And Paul is so ecstatic because they're bearing the cross-shaped birthmark of a believer. If you're a believer in Christ, you have a cross-shaped birthmark. There's this vertical component that I'm, I'm, I'm growing in faith, growing in loving the Lord. And then there's this vertical component where we're loving one another, loving our neighbor as ourselves, giving ourselves to community and to family and being family as God has called us to be. That is the cross-shaped birthmark of a believer. It's incompatible to to move in in one direction and not strive to grow in the other. And so Paul is excited, and, and this is moving him to prayer. He's thankful for the redemptive work of God in people and he's giving thanks to God. And if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we pray like this? How often are our hearts moved by the the growing faith of our friend or our family member? How often do we break out in worship and say, Lord, thank you so much uh, for the faith that you're working uh, in Timothy or in Rachel. Lord, thank you for the grace that is moving Josh or Brian to grow in the Lord. How often are we consumed with worshiping the God who is at work in the lives of others? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, we're more consumed with ourselves and asking God to work through us at the expense of forgetting about those around us. And and Paul is trying to move us away from that. And it's really hard because we live in this American culture uh, that's centered around self. And even as we uh, approach Thanksgiving, how how do we think about Thanksgiving? Well, I'm, I'm thankful that I still have a job. Um, I'm thankful. We, we, we say really shallow things that, that we never think about. Uh, I'm thankful that the lights came on today. When's the last time? Okay, I'm thankful there's food in the fridge. We say these things. Sometimes we mean it, but it's shallow. Like, like we're not thinking about it that often until it comes up. We say things like we're, we're thankful that, that I passed my class. Uh, or some of you, uh, you're thankful that COVID canceled Thanksgiving. So you can really introvert now and avoid certain family members. Uh, I'm a little thankful for that, I'm not going to lie. I'm like, yes, uh, I can be introverted, okay? And so I'm, I'm thankful for, uh, for uh, a smaller gathering. Uh, but this model of Thanksgiving is different. And this model of Thanksgiving is actually life-changing. It's transforming because it, fo- it, it forces you to take, off, to take your eyes off of yourself and to look to something greater. And that's the person of God at work in the world around you. And so Paul says that when we move past the self, in other words, thanksgiving helps us move past the self because it's primarily about God and what he is doing in the world and what he is doing in other people. And being thankful that God is at work in the lives of others. You see, when we get to verse 16, Paul says that he did not cease giving thanks. I love this. He did not cease to give thanks for this community of faith. Uh, The Greek literally translates to, Paul did not quit. He did not stop. He did not quit thanking God for the work of God in the lives of people. People he most likely did not know, people that he, he didn't know, but he had on his mind people he had on his mind while he was imprisoned. He did not quit mentioning this community of Jesus followers in his prayers. And what, what's so amazing about this is, is that God will use circumstances. God will use circumstances to move us into prayer. And this circumstance That Paul's experiencing being in prison did not move him to pray for his release, but moved him to pray for the community of growing faith. Now, in my own prayer life, this is my natural tendency. I've already been too honest, but my natural tendency is to pray about my needs and the things that I want God to accomplish in my life. Like, God, help me um, upgrade my iPad. Look how selfish that is. I don't need a new iPad, uh, but God, I need it. Uh, God, um, help me, uh, you know, be more productive with work so that I can spend more time watching TV. Uh, Or God, uh, help me, uh, you know, uh, avoid the difficult circumstances in life because I'm uncomfortable. Immediately, it's revealing this attitude of of selfishness, of, of me, me, me. And, and Paul is reminding us that there's this other dimension of prayer that's actually liberating when you take your eyes off yourself and, and you begin to praise God for the work that he's doing in other people. Because we're, pray, we're praising God uh, for the work that he's doing in other people. And in other words, it's, in a sense, we're praying that that's the same God who can intervene and do the same work in our lives. And so sometimes that's the best prayer to pray is not necessarily, uh, Lord, uh, help me get through this. But God, I, I thank you that you are a faithful God who is a God of breakthrough, a God of restoration. And, and, and the way that you did it in so-and-so's life, I know that you can do it in mine uh, because we're praising God for the work uh, in other people. And we're taking our eyes off ourselves and lifting up God for who he is. Uh, Paul is putting on display this, this, this dimension of prayer, this element of prayer that's often neglected. And I love what New Testament scholar Clinton Arnold points out. He says that the basis for this Thanksgiving has nothing to do with anything Paul has personally received from the Ephesians. Paul has received nothing from this group. In fact, the only thing that he's received is death threats. And, and so there, there's nothing that is moving Paul based on their own efforts and work that's moving them to be thankful. In our Western culture, uh, thankfulness is based on uh, reciprocity, reciprocation. You do something for me, I thank you for it. Thank you for blessing me with this, uh, this meal on you. You shouldn't have done that. Thank you for this kind act of service. Uh, thankfulness is always dependent on somebody else taking the initiative. But Paul does not wait for that to happen. He, he, his thankfulness is not based on what he's received. Rather, This thankfulness is based on God's powerful work in the lives of his readers and their faithful response to it. Paul is overwhelmed that they're experiencing God's grace, that their lives are being changed, and he's profoundly grateful for it. Church, how thankful are we for lives being changed around us? I'll be the first to say that that it, it, it doesn't cross my mind as often as I want it to, I want to be moved to thanksgiving. Lord, thank you for working in this person's life. Thank you for, for growing them in their faith. And Paul is saying that when we move in, in, in that direction, we're able to experience this, this element of prayer, this dimension of prayer that is often robbed when we pray for selfish thanksgiving. Paul is thankful, and he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I'm thankful for this group of people. He, he, he's asking God that they would be richly blessed. And he's requesting things for their lives. And, and he requests three specific things. Uh, one, that they would know God, know God better. He's praying, I, I pray that, 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 that you would know God better. He's praying that, that they would know hope. And he's praying that they would know power. To know God, to know hope, and to know power. Uh, so let's look at verse 17. Verse 17. This is what it says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Paul's primary desire, Paul's only desire, one could argue, is that this community would know God, that they would know the God that transformed his life that they would know the God of the universe and that they would give their lives to union with him. And he is praying this for them. And and, and what I love about this is that it's just not enough to know about God. We know this, we've heard about this. It's not enough to know about God, who he is, uh, where he's located, where you can find out more about him. It's not enough to know about God but we're called to actually know him. We're invited to know him. You see, we see in the lives of the disciples that there can be a community of people that know about God, and yet one of them was never with him, Judas Iscariot. And then we can see another person who knew God, who had stumbling faith, the apostle Peter, who at moments rejected God, but nonetheless was preserved because he wanted to know God. Peter longed to know God, and, and so the idea is that you can be in church right now, and you can know about God, you can know how to pray, you can know the right scriptures, and, and, and then yet Jesus can, 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 can declare something uh, so um, so heartbreaking as in "I never knew you," because it just wasn't enough to do things for God. It wasn't enough to say you know about him when he's made available for you union and relationship with him. You see, it's not an indictment on your faith. Rather, it's an invitation to something greater than knowing about God. You can actually know him and be with him. That You don't have to just research about him. You don't have to hear about him, but you can sit with him. You can be with him. You can commune with him. You can drive your car and sit with him. You can walk through the grocery store and he walk next to you. You can be cooking in the kitchen and God is with you. We have this intimate relationship and union with him. Like this is the type of access that God has given us is that we can know him and we settle for knowing about him. And so it's not necessarily an indictment that that you never knew him because uh, your faith was terrible, but that there was something way better made available for you and you settled for something less. You settled for um, the, the pirated, counterfeited version of a relationship with God when you can actually know him and sit with him. I, I love that in the creation account, when God creates Adam and Eve, um, there's this Hebrew word that is used there, that, that when God breathed life into him, it says that it's, it, it was face-to-face. That it's this idea that we have face-to-face intimacy with God. That when we commune with God, that we're in relationship with God. God is not at a distance and God is not absent. God is not waiting for us to add him to a Google Calendar appointment. God is not waiting for us to, to click Admit on a Zoom meeting. But God is face-to-face with us. And we have this sort of intimate relationship with him where, where uh, he is right in front of us. Union. Union with Christ. I will never, ever stop stop preaching union. Union is one of the most wonderful words in the scriptures. One of the most wonderful promises that God gives us is that I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And we're inseparable. And I'm not insecure. I don't doubt my relationship with God. That God has made available for me, for you, for the believer in Jesus, intimate access with him. And, and God, in his great kindness, his heart is grieved when we settle for Wikipedia definitions of God. His heart is grieved when we settle for secondhand knowledge of God. When in reality, he's saying, these things that you're hearing about, I want to do in your life. And I want to do it with you. We have, church, we have union with God. Do you believe this? Do you walk in this? Or do you settle for secondhand experiences, secondhand knowledge when he wants to be firsthand, directly face-to-face involved in your life. Union with God. This is uh, amazing. This is, this is beautiful. And, and Paul is praying that they would realize this. It doesn't say, Paul says that, that he wants them to know this, to be made aware of this knowledge. Why? Because it's something we already have, but we tend to neglect and forget about. We forget that we have this sort of intimacy, this sort of relationship with God. And so we live reactive lives like, God, uh, when are you going to do something in my life? When are you going to show up and show out? Uh, and, and so we live these, these passive moments when, God, when Paul is saying, it's there. It's for you. You can know God. You can walk with him. You can raise the dead, heal the blind, uh, see incredible miracle signs and wonders. You can partner with God's work in seeing his kingdom advance. You don't have to wait for a moment to happen. It already happened at the cross and at the moment that you said yes to Jesus where you were united with him. And so Paul is praying and saying, you already have this. I want you to be more aware of it. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is what you have. And our life becomes being made more aware of this, more aware and more confident that this is the access and the union we have with God. And, and, and one of the things that, that I love is that is that Paul wrote thirteen books in the New Testament. Four of them were written from prison. Uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and, and, and Philemon, Philemon, whichever preference. Uh, one New Testament scholar points out that it is only in the prison letters, that it is it's only in the letters where Paul is imprisoned that he writes on behalf of his people that they would be filled with the knowledge of God. That's incredible. Because because what that means is that Paul firsthand knows that the persecution he's experiencing, that the bondage that he's walking in, that the chains that he's carrying uh, is no comparison for knowing God. And in other words, he's putting on display that that rather than praying something as, as easy as Lord set me free from imprisonment, he wants his readers to know that knowing God is far better. That knowing God and being in union with him is so much better than anything this world has to offer. This is the great spiritual blessing that we have in Christ. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3.8, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Paul's prayer is to know God better and not to give themselves to all the other false gods because that's the setting, that's Ephesus. There's uh, over 500 deities, 500 idols. You pick the one that works for you. You pick the one um, that is your vibe, your lifestyle, wherever your heart is leading you. And, And that's what people would give themselves to. Give themselves to these idols and worship them. And they would give themselves to trying to know this idol to try to know this God. So on this day, we'll go to, to this temple and do this task. On, on this day, we'll, we'll do this magic ritual, cast this spell, and this will happen. And so they're giving themselves to these worthless pursuits, these meaningless pursuits, in an, in an attempt to know a spiritual uh, power greater than themselves. And, and, and Paul is saying, that power you can find in Christ. And, and, and on top of that, it is inside of you. And it is relational and it is intimate and it has your welfare in mind. In other words, God has uh, your good. He takes it into consideration that God doesn't leave you absent to yourself and and takes you on a journey that's reckless and meaningless. Rather, he's doing everything specifically to grow you and to prosper you. That's an incredible God that we serve. And so he's praying for the spirit of revelation. Uh, He's praying uh, for the spirit of revelation. In other words, he's praying that the Holy Spirit would reveal this truth to them, that the Holy Spirit would would remind them of this promise. Why? Because none of this is possible without the work of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit leads us into experiencing God. The Scripture says that our condition, apart from Christ, is that our faces are veiled. Like, Like, we can't see God, and we can't see the world the way God sees the world, And instead, all we can really see is who we are and and we give ourselves to things that will benefit us. We give ourselves to our own desires and to the works of the flesh. That's what the scripture says. And it also says that it's only the Holy Spirit that can remove this veil, that can take the blinders off, that illuminates us to see the world the way God created the world to be. And, And nothing in your best efforts can remove the veil in fact, the more you attempt to remove the veil, the more uh, you, you, you give yourself to the darkness that plagues this world. Because our best attempts can't help us to see clearly. And Jesus comes in, and the Holy Spirit removes the veil and now we're able to see God. We're able to experience God. That's why if you're a follower of Christ, there was a, there was, there was a moment, maybe a very distinct moment, where, where you viewed this sin that you gave your life to differently. And, and previously, up until then, you had no problem giving yourself into the sin that breaks the heart of God. And in one moment, now your, your thoughts and your attitudes begin to change about it. It begins to change the way maybe you view, I don't know, uh, uh, drunkenness or, or relationships or lying or integrity. And God begins to do this work where he's revealing and showing you uh, how he sees the world and how he's calling you to walk in it. And like I said, it might not be perfect obedience, but maybe there's this moment that you can pinpoint where you, where you think to yourself, man, I used to walk this certain way. These, these sort of things used to entertain me. Now they don't. Uh, I used to give myself into this habit. Now I find myself rejecting it. It's because the Holy Spirit has come and removed the veils and, and transformed your desires and the way you see the world so that you can experience life the way God intended you to do so. This is what Jesus says in John 17, 17, 3. that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, knowing God leads to eternal life and eternal life is not just a destination. If you always think of eternal life as simply a destination, you will miss out on the life that God has made available to you right now in this present moment. Eternal life is the life that Jesus lived. Eternal life is the quality of life. Eternal life is the life that Jesus lived that was full of peace, full of power, full of security, full of provision, full of joy, full of satisfaction, full of love, mercy, and grace. Eternal life is this quality of life that is the supreme essence of joy and happiness. See, sometimes we wish happiness upon people, but far better than that is eternal life. I wish uh, eternal life upon you. I wish the life that Jesus lived upon you because that is the most satisfying whole way to live life. And the Holy Spirit leads us into this, leads us into delighting in God, leads us into loving him more and into laying down idols. See, oftentimes the, the barriers that keep us from walking in this eternal life, in this quality of life, is uh, our own sin, our own desires, our own flesh that gives itself to lesser things. Instead of giving ourselves to God, we, we give ourselves to um, passions and hobbies and, and, and careers. And we give ourselves to knowing those things, to being well-versed in those things, to being experts in, this thing, in those things, whether it's, whether it's fashion or health and fitness. Uh, whether it's this career that, that is on your mind and you give yourself to being the expert, to knowing it so intimately that if somebody else claimed to know that, uh, you, 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 could, you could expose a, a con, you could expose someone who's being false. Like if I claimed that I knew all about health and fitness and then you saw the way that I live my life and the workouts that I don't do, I would be instantly exposed in comparison to my friends who are expert in the field. And so there's nothing wrong with being well-informed and well-versed and having a knowledge of of these passions. But there is something wrong when we make that the supreme goal in God in our lives, where we only give ourselves to those things, hoping that, that it would be the source of life, joy, and satisfaction, where we only give ourselves to knowing about this career, this lifestyle, this hobby, at the expense of knowing less about God. Then we've made it an idol. And so the Holy Spirit helps us lay down those idols so that we could uh, lay our, our heart and our attention and our mind in our lives and put them in the Lord's hand and, and, and fixate our hearts on knowing him and growing in him and, 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 and being in intimate union with him. I mean, this is an incredible prayer to have on the forefront of our minds. This is a prayer that I find myself praying often that I'm gonna pray every single day. God, I want to know you better. I don't wanna settle for what I know about you. I don't wanna settle for what my friends say about you. I don't wanna settle for these testimonies of you working in other people's lives. I want to know you and I wanna believe that you can do those same things in my life. God, I wanna have a history with you. God, I want experience with you. God, I I, I want to know you better. Church, let that be the prayer on the forefront of your mind. Not I want to know about this actress or sport athlete better. Not I want to know how to do X, Y, and Z better. But Lord, how can I know you better? Before we give ourselves to other things, let's give ourselves to God and know him better. The second thing Paul wants them to know is hope. Paul wants them to know hope. As we've been reading through these verses, the second thing Paul says is that he wants the readers to know hope. Once again, he says to know hope. In other words, hope has been made available for you. Hope is your friend. Hope lives in your house. Get to know hope. He's not saying go muster up hope. He's not saying go retrieve hope. He's not saying go build up hope. He's saying no hope because the personification of hope is a person, and that person is Jesus, the embodiment of hope. And Paul says no hope the same way you know God. And so what I love about hope that's important to point out is that hope is not optimism. Hope is not this idea, this way of thinking about the future and saying Oh, everything's going to be okay. There's an element to that, but that's not strictly what hope is. Hope is not being optimistic about the present and, and, and awaiting something better. Because the reality of it is, is that things might get worse. In fact, things will get worse. Uh, that's what Jesus says. He says that in this lifetime, if you claim allegiance to me, you will experience trouble, you will experience persecution just the same way that I have, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we don't hope for things to necessarily get better. We train our hearts to know hope, to know the person of Christ who has overcome the world. And, 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 and in that place, can we believe for a better future? Hope is not escapism. Hope is not this idea that, that we need to run away from, from the brokenness and, from, and the circumstances and the problems that plague humanity. That's not hope. Hope is not escaping the reality that we live in by 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 just being passive and waiting for things to pass on by. That is not hope. Hope is active. Hope enters into the brokenness of humanity. Hope steps into the injustices of the world and proclaims the goodness of God and puts on display the miracle working power of Jesus and brings uh, and brings love and comfort and assurance and grace and mercy to these parts of, of, of life, the world, or even our own hearts that are broken. The same way that Jesus did not escape the reality of a broken world, he entered into humanity and, and, and ushered in this wonderful work of redemption and reconciliation so that we can have relationship with him, so that we can know him and partner with him in restoring the world. Hope is not about escaping the difficult things. Hope is about going straightforward into it and knowing that, that we are in union with a God who can step into the difficult parts of life and redeem and restore and reorder and bring new life, make all things new, wipe away every tear. Uh, this, I love this definition of, of hope from uh, pa- Pastor Glenn Packiam. He says that Christian hope is a confident assurance, grounded in God's promise and faithfulness as revealed in the scriptures uh, and in the life of Christ. That the triune God will bring about the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come at the time of Christ's appearing. This will make heaven and earth new and one by means of what has already been accomplished at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That hope is confident assurance, grounded, rooted in the promises and faithfulness of God. For the past few weeks, we've been saying this over and over again. God is not a liar. God does not lie. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. He follows through on his word. In Genesis chapter 3, he said, I will crush the enemy and restore this broken world back unto me. And we see that happen as Jesus crushes Satan once and for all at the cross. Jesus says that he will give us the gift of the Holy Spirit, and in Acts, before that, in Joel chapter 2, uh, the prophet says that the Spirit of God will be poured out onto us so that we can experience union. Jesus reaffirms the same thing, and it happens in Acts chapter 2. God is not a liar. If he says something, he's going to do it. Jesus said uh, that in three days I will die. And all of his followers are like, no way, you can't die. We got you. We we would never let that happen. And lo and behold, they let it happen. Jesus dies. Uh, They are having panic attacks. He raises from the dead. And he literally says in John chapter 22, you can read this. He says, says, "I, I told you this would happen. Why are you panicking? says, I told you that I would die and I would raise from the dead. So when God says he's going to do something, he does it. He's not a liar and he's faithful on his promises. And so because of this, we can have this hope. We can have this confident assurance that the world that we live in will not remain. That, That the circumstance that might plague us or the chains that we're in or the hardship that we're experiencing will not be the final word and testimony that there is something better for us, that, that there is something awaiting us that is far greater than what we're experiencing. And so we can step into life with this confident assurance. We cannot be, uh, we're given uh, the opportunity to not necessarily be dejected and oppressed as, as one who has no father, but we have a God who is in union with us, who is with us as we experience even the worst parts of life we can have this confident assurance that he's moving and that he's working and that he's shifting all things for our good. You see, the idols that the Ephesians gave themselves to had no interest in their personal lives. They were impersonal forces. Uh, They were false gods. And even the things that we give ourselves to have no interest in our personal lives, even if it might be about, you know, personal development. Um, At the end of the day, it's not looking at you thinking like, yes, you're great. It's impersonal force. But God is this personal force at work in our lives who desires good for our lives. And so when we give ourselves to him uh, and, and we experience life, it, it, it's not chaos, rather it's all ordered by God to grow us and form us and take us somewhere we can never take ourselves on our own. And, and Paul is saying that, 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 that when the veil is removed, we can view the world more with more purpose. And that's why he says in verse 18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? I want to focus on this phrase, eyes of your heart. Uh, If it sounds strange, it's because it is. Uh, Nowhere in the scriptures is this phrase found. Nowhere in the ancient writings of history do you see this phrase ever come up. Why? Why? Because Paul is a boss, and he just made up a metaphor, Uh, and it it works. Uh, Paul uh, is saying, and he what Paul saying is that essentially the the Greek translates to heart eyes. So our body have eyes the way that help us see the world around us, and our hearts have eyes that help us interpret the world that we're living in, that inform our experiences, that stir our affections. And so in other words, there's, there's one way to view the world, with, our, with, our, with our, the eyes of our body, and then there's another way to view the world, and that's seeing the world the way God sees the world, seeing what God is up to and what God is moving and rearranging. Uh, this quote from Richard Coykin says that Paul knows that, that the way we see in this world, what we value and desire or fear and avoid is not just a rational decision based upon information neutrally observed. Rather, our perspectives depend upon our values, which are shaped by the affections of our heart. In other words, the the fear that we experience, the joy that we experience, the happiness that we experience, the desires that we have are not random and neutral. They come from somewhere. They come from our perspective that is shaped by the affections of our heart. Um, An example of this is that two people can be standing before one object and completely interpret it differently based upon their experiences, based upon their fears and attitudes and values. Uh, I can be standing before a skating rink, uh, and I see just an opportunity for fun. I love skating rinks. I love the movie Brink, uh, the old Disney movie. I wanted to be an X Games rollerblader. Too bad that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, And so... uh, my wife, she can be standing before a skating rink, and she sees the opposite. She sees a, a place of, of dread and destruction that should be dropped into the pit of hell. She hates skating rinks. Uh, and the reason why she hates skating rinks so much is because uh, she had this traumatic head injury at a skating rink, and somebody bumped into her, and she, like, knocked herself out. And she's like, never again will I skate in my life. And so we go to skating rinks all the time to skating. we haven't been to a skating rink ever. I kind of miss it. Um... Yes, yeah, skating rinks are cool. Uh, another example is that you could be standing before this, 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 this piece of art. We, I like going to museums, and, and I love colors, and I love imagery, and I think it's awesome. My heart is just being refreshed, and my wife thinks it's boring. Okay? You see how we're seeing the same thing with our eyes, but our heart is interpreting the experience differently. And the reason why is because the, the Scripture never uses the word heart to describe an organ. The, in English, we think uh, of, about the heart as the seat of human emotions. Follow your heart. Do what your heart desires. We're essentially saying whatever, however you feel about it, you know, whatever your happiness or joy is in, go after that. But in Hebrew, this idea of heart is radically different. Uh, in Hebrew, heart is the center of the physical and spiritual being, that the physical and the spiritual are not separated. Rather, they're united And at the center of it is the heart. And the heart just doesn't compose the intellect and the mind, but the emotions and the desires and the will. That the heart houses not just information, but passions. That the heart is both the center of mental health and emotional health. You see, when a person's intellect and passions are are at odds, we say things like the heart is divided. The heart feels divided. Why? Because at the center is both the physical and and the spiritual, the emotions and the intellect. And Paul prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the hope to which they have been called. He's praying for the the eyes of the heart, the heart eyes, to be enlightened. Uh, In in other words, what what Paul is saying uh, is that without the light of Christ, Shining into our hearts, we walk in darkness. We walk in separation from God. We fail to, to see what God is doing in our lives and in the world around us. We have, we, have, we have no way of interpreting it because we can't see it. And Paul's saying, this scripture is saying that our hearts need to be enlightened. That the light of Jesus, when it shines into our hearts, we're enabled, to love the things that God loves, and we're able to see the way the world God does. And so when our hearts are enlightened, when we go through difficult circumstances, when we're faced with uncomfortable situations, what we see maybe before our heart was enlightened was another moment of just dread. Oh man, just another bad day after bad day. But when the heart is enlightened... Instead of seeing a difficult circumstance, what we see is an opportunity for God to work in our lives. What we see is the means, the avenue by which God wants to to grow us and shape us and form us. You see, when our hearts are enlightened, we we begin to see the, the world the way God sees the world. And now you going and navigating through life is not meaningless, it's purposeful. And so then every opportunity of your life becomes about becomes the grounds in which God is shaping you and forming you and making you more like him. And as long as you continue to think about God growing you just in the context of being in church or praying or reading the word and he does those things, you'll miss out on what God is doing in the world around you. That's why he's saying, uh, uh, open up your eyes. Open up the the eyes of your heart. Let the light of Christ shine in because this situation that you're going through is actually God blessing you to grow you and to do something that couldn't be done elsewhere. And so now we can go through life and and instead of seeing a a difficult circumstance, it becomes maybe uh, the ground where God is trying to increase our faith. Maybe instead of uh, going through a, 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 an uncomfortable situation that incites rage, it becomes the opportunity that God uses to expose rage so that it can be put to death and you can be made alive in Christ. Now instead of going home um, and, and being impatient with, with, with the kids, the kids become uh, the thing that God uses to expose uh, uh, lack of patience so that you can grow in patience and kindness and be more like Jesus. And so instead of giving way to the desires of our flesh, when our hearts are enlightened, we can give way to the desires of what God wants to do in this moment in my life. And this means, church, that God is at work in every single moment of your life. That when you're standing in the grocery line, God is at work in your life. And we can ask ourselves, God, what is it that you want to show me and do in me or through me so that I can become more like you? As you're driving in the car, God is with you. And when our hearts are enlightened, we can see the world and say, God, what is it? What is is your desires for this community? What is your desires for my neighborhood? What is your desires for my my home? Every single moment becomes an opportunity of growing in our faith in Christ versus when our hearts are darkened, every opportunity, when our hearts are darkened, every single circumstance that that doesn't align with our desires seems like a setback. It, it, it seems like an inconvenience. It seems like it seems meaningless, and yet those are the opportunities where God uh, works in our lives to craft something in us that could not be crafted elsewhere. I love this. He does this with the disciples. Instead of telling them, "Hey, have great faith in me, uh, that that I will protect you and that you have nothing to fear," what does Jesus do? He takes them out into the boat, into stormy waters, to the point that they're fearing for their life because they're afraid that this storm is going to overturn their boat and they're all going to die because that's what usually happens. And God, Jesus, uses that moment to grow them in their faith in him by telling the winds and the seas to cease and putting on display that he is the God who has control over all creation. Church, as we go into this week, let us remember that these moments are not meaningless. But they're purposeful. Uh, that 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 the hard time you're having at work, God is using to grow and develop something in you that could not be done any other way. Uh, that 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 the the home life that you're experiencing, uh, though it may be painful and traumatic, God wants to do something. God God wants to redeem it and shape it um, and use it to grow you and not be the death of you, but breathe life into you. When our hearts are enlightened. When the eyes of our hearts are opened by the Spirit, we see life differently. We see how God is at work versus how we think we interpret the world and, 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 and what we think should be happening. Uh, we can walk confidently in this hope because the power of God, uh, because of the power of God that has been demonstrated on the cross. And this is the third thing that Paul wants us to know is power. He wants us to know power once again we have power in fact it says that we have resurrection power that the same power that raised jesus from the dead dwells inside of us and paul is saying do you know this have you been made aware of this if not know this get to know it be so confident in this uh, that you begin to walk in power in all areas of your life and, and it goes to say for all three of these things to know god to know hope and to know power is that with any quality relationship, um, it, it, takes, it takes time, it takes rhythms, it takes patience with yourself. Um, I really thought I knew my wife. First day I met her, done. I know this woman. She's going to love me. Give me six weeks. She did not love me uh, after six weeks. Uh, but now, uh, after months and a few years of getting to know each other, and we're still getting to know each other, we're learning to love each other better. Um, as, as we are active in pursuing each other and getting to know each other. And the more we know about each other, the more confidently we walk in, in, in how we treat each other and how we love each other. In the same way that Paul is saying, get to know, no, no, no. It's this active, not sort of like you arrive at this place, but the more you begin to know, the more you grow in this confident assurance. The more you begin to know his power, the more you'll see his power manifested in your life. And we have this power that raised Jesus from the dead. We have this, this power uh, that will also raise us from the dead, that, that we know that, that Christ has risen from death. We will too. God's done it before. He'll do it again in our lives. And this power has been made available to us to drink from, like a fountain that never ends. This power is ours, church, to overcome sin, This power is ours that helps us pursue holiness. This power is ours that that helps us partner with God in waging war against the dark forces and injustices in this world that are trying to seek and kill the image of God on his children. We have this power rushing through us, flowing in us. And what is so tragic is that we have this resurrection power living inside of us and we settle for living ordinary lives. We settle for living lives absent of God's power. We wake up in the morning and we try to do things out of our own strength instead of tapping into the power that's been made available for us. We try to muster the strength in ourselves to overcome sexual sin, to overcome the habits of sin that we know are destroying us. And we think to ourselves, I can do this on my own. When God has made available to us resurrection power, that means that power that destroys sin and death, power that overcomes sin and death has been made available to us. And so we can tap into this. We can walk in this confidently. We don't have to uh, empower ourselves when this has already been made available to us. We're just called to know it more intimately. We're just called to know that this is our portion and that this has been made available. My, I'm preaching to me. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself. I do not want to settle for an ordinary Christian life when God has po- promised me extraordinary power, when God has promised me union with him. Why on earth would I want to settle for something so basic as the comforts of just life and sitting there and binging TV? Church, let us be this community of people that will not settle for the mundane, that will not settle for the ordinary. When we have this extraordinary God who has made himself available to us and has given us the power to walk in life, to walk victorious, to know him. This is incredible. Incredible! This is what moved Paul to this elongated moment of praise and worship. So, what do we do with this? Uh, just how then shall we live, knowing that this is ours, knowing that that there's a person that is for us, and is in us, and we are in Him, knowing that hope is our portion, and is not something that we have to attain or go after. And knowing that resurrection power flows through our veins, how then shall we live? What do we do from here? Well, these are three simple, practical things that I want to invite you to join me in doing this week. Three things. In fact, uh, I want to do this right now. Actually, uh, since there's no service behind us, I want to just take a moment to pray these prayer points. And I want these prayer points, uh, I want these to be on the forefront of your mind every single day. And I want to invite you to pray these things with me every single day, that, that we would know God, that we would know hope, and that we would know power. So let's do this right now uh, with however you want to posture yourself before the Lord, whether it's with your eyes closed or your head bowed or with your eyes open. You can even walk around with your mask on, whatever it takes for you to know and be with God. I want you to, I want you to pray this first prayer with me, that you would know God better. Maybe you don't have language for prayer. Maybe you're not a Christian and this is interesting to you. God would love to reveal himself to you. You could simply pray, God, help me to know you better. Let's pray. The second thing I wanna invite you to pray with me is that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Would you pray that God would open up the eyes of your heart so you can see the world the way he does so that you can go through life and embrace life the way God sees life. The third thing I invite you to pray with me is is would you ask God to help you know his power better, to help you walk in the power that he's been made made available to you? Would you ask the Holy Spirit to help you do that? Thank you for praying with me. With, like I said, with all relationships, at least all meaningful relationships, it requires a sense of intentionality and consistency. And so I encourage you, join me this week to consistently pray these things every day, maybe even every hour. Uh, these three things, simple. God, help me to know you better. God, enlighten uh, the eyes of my heart. Help me to see the world and see life the way you see it. And God, help me to know your power. And as we begin to pray this, remember, we said God is faithful. God, God loves answering these kinds of prayers. Why? Because he loves making us aware of what's already been made available to us. And so these are prayers that God will answer. And so I encourage you to take that step and take that initiative to ask God to help you grow in these things. Because it's not in our, in our sin nature, in our sin frame, it's not natural. We move in the opposite direction. So we need to constantly reorient our heart towards God. And we have this confidence uh, that, that we can know God because Jesus became a man so that we can know God. Jesus became hopeless so that we could have hope. And Jesus became powerless so that we could have power. And in the life and ministry of Jesus, he took to the cross all the idols and all the things that we would distract ourselves with, all the things that we, that we feel would rob us of power, all the things uh, that we feel would rob us of hope and rob us of intimacy with God. He nailed it to the cross, rendered it useless, and now we have unrestricted, no barriers in the way, access, face-to-face union with God. And so as we come to communion, as we come to the table, let us, let us remember and celebrate these things. Let us remember, worship, that we get to know God, that we have hope, and that we have power in Christ. So on the night that Jesus was, was betrayed...